You're listening to Destination Country X, a KPMG tax radio podcast series. We cover key U.S. and foreign tax and trade developments that affect cross-border investment. I'm your host, Kim Major, a principal with Washington National Tax and tax industry lead for U.S. international corridors. We're glad you could join us. Enjoy the program. We last spoke about U.S. trade policy before the 2020 elections, and at that point, we pondered what life in the trade and customs arena would be like under a Biden administration. Would a change in the White House and on Capitol Hill spell more or less disruption for the United States and our trading partners? The election has only been in the rear view for a few months, but it hasn't taken that long for the new administration to find its voice on the trade front. So we thought we'd take some time to get our bearings on what lies ahead. Joining me today is my co-host, Courtney Wallace, an international tax principal from our Detroit office. And rejoining us are George Zaharatos, principal from our Trade and Customs Group in Atlanta, and Chris Young, Trade and Customs Principal from KPMG in Chicago. So welcome back, Chris and George. I'm excited for the conversation today. As I think back to our discussion last time, I think that there was a little bit of uncertainty around, is anything going to happen? Are we going to see changes in policy? How are things going to look on a go-forward basis? So I think now we're shifting really to what's going to happen. Our last discussion kicked off with a conversation about retaliatory tariffs, particularly the U.S.'s use of Section 301 against China and the slight detente in the DST versus tariff situation with France. So that's probably as good a place to start as any. What's the current state of play on those fronts? You know, Kim, what we were sort of talking through last time was definitely what our expectations were in the Biden administration, right? First and foremost, we didn't expect a huge change in the position on China and the 301 tariffs, which are by far the most significant of the tariffs that we'll talk about today, right? So we weren't expecting changes on that front. And true enough, there haven't been any various reasons for that, of course, but none more so than it's not a very popular move at the moment politically. So they're sticking around. The other sort of the big tariff impact on a lot of imports into the US at the moment was the Airbus Boeing dispute. So tariffs on that. And we predicted that there would be supported by Biden's own policy views around maybe forming more of an alliance-based partnership with European countries to tackle issues like China's trade practices. We expected more of a problem-solving attitude there. And I think that's what we've seen in that those tariffs have been suspended and they're looking at least until July, that is, as, as they look to sort of continue negotiation around those tariffs. The other thing, there's a new USTR, Catherine Tai. So I haven't read all of her transcripts from all of her different sessions, but she's been critical of China in the past and their trade practice. So it's going to be interesting as whether or not that spells a loosening of the Chinese tariffs. Yeah, to Chris's point, the uh, former USTR Lighthizer gave credit to the Biden team for maintaining a hard line against China. And Catherine Tai, the new USTR who was unanimously confirmed, shared views that tariffs are a legitimate tool in the toolbox. From a perspective of what to expect, the trade and tariff issues will continue. It's just where will the focus be? And Europe is one of the areas where we're looking to rebuild our relationship. We've seen some of the suspension and delays around some of the tariffs that were proposed in the Trump administration. And it just goes back to what we heard on the campaign trail, which is rebuilding relationships, but putting America in a position to be first when it comes to production, when it comes to jobs, when it comes to environment 
and infrastructure. At the same time that I guess the detente in Europe is going to continue, we've still heard about new potential retaliatory tariffs. I I think Spain was on that list, Turkey, India, there are a few more. So there's a little bit of a giving with one hand. Is there a taking with the other in terms of making friends and, and influencing people? So there's a comment period that's open now on the proposed 25% tariffs against countries with proposed DST. Mm-hmm. And those countries that are part of that investigation are Austria, India, Italy, Spain, Turkey, and the UK. And a lot of are focused on what it is that U.S. companies would end up paying in DST that they're calculating the additional tariffs on. So what you have is tariff lists that are widely based on imports from those countries mm-hmm. and target specific products. So for Turkey, it could be rugs and you know, linens, ceramic tiles, jewelry, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the UK, it would be apparel and footwear and refrigerating equipment. And Chris, you'll be happy to note that there's no alcohol on that list. <laughs> so, so do they basically say, well, you know, the DST would cost about this much and therefore we're going to impose retaliatory tariffs on a mix of products that get us to about that much to recapture? Is that the way that works? That's it, Kim. It's trying to create a level playing field in trade and tax and combining the two, which we have really never seen before. I think that's why you see more discussion about having a multilateral approach on taxes with the OECD, because you can imagine if we do kind of a pop shot approach on tariffs with each tax that is being raised by another country, it could be a very complicated few years here. Mm -hmm. So I think it's to everybody's best interest to have tariffs as a mechanism to create that level playing field, but not so in a way that would create business uncertainty if every time something happened, your reaction was to put another tariff. Isn't there a proposed DST coming out of Canada? Did I get that right? Assuming that that's right, that gets really difficult then with USMCA. Well, I think that there's precedence though, even if there was discriminatory practice by Canada, there's precedence for that, as you saw last year with the steel tariffs, right? So it doesn't necessarily affect USMCA you can layer in tariffs on top. I mean, George, correct if I'm wrong here, but that's essentially what what happened. So you you imported something and it was free of customs duty because it qualified under NAFTA at the time and then eventually USMCA, but you could still pay an additional duty laid in on top, in that case, Section 232. So, I mean, that's still, it would certainly create tensions and and conflict and, and whatever else, but fundamentally, I think you could still, from a duty perspective, it could still be made to work. It strikes me as super challenging because we've talked about China and Asia, Turkey, India, Spain, continental Europe, UK, and all different products. And it's worse than whack-a-mole. It's so specific to different products and countries and otherwise that it's difficult to plan around, I would say, for companies. And in fact, I think what you would end up seeing is companies starting to retract back from how they're going to set up their supply chain if that happens. And we've seen a lot of disruption in supply chain. You probably have heard a lot about semiconductors that are being imported into the U.S. for automotive, having a backlog where it's causing disruptions in production. The supply chains are very volatile. 
business certainty is really important and should be high on the agenda of the administration when they start implementing tariffs just on single taxes that arise on other countries. So I would assume, though, that if they're looking at the import lists, they're going to think if those things are components or significant products that are manufactured in the United States, we're just going to shoot ourselves in the foot at the end of the day. Does that play into it? In my opinion, it's hard to say because it depends on how much time do you allow for the industries and the companies to respond to some of these proposed actions to actually be able to report how it's going to negatively impact them. And, you know, I think that's what has caused a lot of disruption in the past four years. If the tariffs go into effect quickly and there's little time to pivot and little time to assess what the impact will be, then, you know, a lot of companies are left flat-footed. I think it's a political question, right? I think that you saw with the Airbus Boeing tariffs that they were trying Mm -hmm. to hurt particular industry. I mean, obviously the aircraft themselves, right? Mm -hmm. But also, um, you know, handbags from Italy make up from France. Whereas you saw with the Section 301 tariffs on China that initially, at least, it was certain sectors of products, but then essentially a vast portion of products coming from China. But then there was a process that Congress mandated, which allowed for exclusions, which is where, to your point, not wanting to shoot ourselves in the foot by bringing in products, which you literally cannot get from anywhere else, they did at least allow for a process to do that. But the hand was forced by Congress. So I I think it really depends on the tariff, on the political motivations for them and really what you're trying to achieve through them. And Chris, you remember how the duties from China increased 19% from last year, year over year, as the Section 301 duties. And then duties overall increased 3.5%, even though with COVID, trade was down. There was, what, 8% less customs entries that were filed with customs. It's hard to imagine both politically and revenue-wise, that these would go away anytime soon. Knowing that the China tariffs will remain in place for a while, based on what we're hearing, I wonder whether or not they'll open up those exclusions again, or if they'll follow the lead of the previous administration, where they considered the fact that if you had a year or two years to move your supply chain out of China, you should have done it. That's what we're tracking to help companies find some ways to continue to maintain their supply chain and do so in a way that they're not impacted, but also while they're exploring other supply chains to come up with as many other sources of production and other sources of origin where they could import these products from that don't have these tariffs on them. When it comes right down to it, those don't change radically from administration to administration. We want to protect U.S. manufacturing. Do we like imports? Yeah, okay, that's fine. But we're still going to make sure that that our guys are okay. We were saying this the other day with respect to public C by C reporting. I think the pressure is going to come down to jobs. You're earning a bajillion dollars in this economy. Have you only created 17 jobs? You can't do that. And if you and, earn a bajillion dollars but have a ton of jobs, you're going to get a pass on that, right? Uh, I think in the school of public opinion, you're going to be fine. Protecting jobs kind of never goes out of style. So mm-hmm. I think that that is going to continue to be a focus as we go forward. And we heard a lot about human capital and all of that coming through on the tax side. I think it's going to continue to carry over into the trade policy. Right. If you look at the whole double the guilty rate or let's look at a round tripping penalty, 
we don't love it that you're taking your manufacturing offshore. Can we have it in the United States, please? And if you're going to take it offshore, we're certainly not going to give you a tax benefit for doing that is the rhetoric. And these are the themes, but tax has to be <laughs> legislated and this does not. We're seeing a lot more in executive orders that address supply chain. We saw a Buy America executive order. We see a lot more with respect to China in the way of what was going on in the last administration to put pressure. John Kerry is going to China as part of a climate summit, is uh, going to discuss, meet with the premier there to discuss trade. We think that there's a lot more to come and we don't see the China tariffs going away anytime soon. Tariffs are cool, George. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you just just summed it up in three words, Chris. I mean, really. (laughs) (laughs) Tariffs are still going to be used as a geopolitical tool. We don't see that changing. So I think any particular issue that the administration takes up can be dealt with surgically through tariffs. The use of them surgically with respect of digital services tax actually fits with that theme. So they're targeted, very focused on the impact that the DSTs might have. So they're not just arbitrary in scope. They're very tailored to particular products and particular amounts in the millions, not in the billions of potential imports from those countries. So can we go back to Buy American Act? What was the nature of guidance or discussion on Buy American Act? Well, Kim, there are provisions, especially with government sourcing, mm-hmm. to source products that are made in the USA or have a certain amount of U.S. content. Mm-hmm. When Biden passed his executive order back in January of 2021, that executive order, it's actually titled Ensuring the Future is Made in All of America by All of America's Workers. <laughs> And the idea there is to bolster those made in America laws, some of which have very difficult compliance considerations in whether or not you actually meet those rules. So there's content requirements. Companies need to be able to go and review the bill of material on a finished product and make sure that that product will meet those requirements. I thought those requirements were changed a little bit by those executive orders, weren't they? In that executive order, there were stipulations on increasing the value, the numerical threshold mm-hmm. uh, for the domestic content requirements for the end products, and also the price preferences for domestic end products. If the test is going to change, and particularly if the content percentage requirement, if the threshold is going to change, it's going to take a lot of work, I would think, particularly if you weren't sure to begin with, to having to show exactly where you are under the new rules. And I think there's a natural correlation there, too, with what we're seeing then on the tax side, right, Kim, even more as we think about where is the profit, where is the value. So there's this need to just get down to almost every item, right? Because if I think about the OECD BEPS and and Pillar 2 and where are the pieces of the profit, it's down to each component. It's down to each piece of this to understand where the profits need to end up, where was it made, all the made in America themes, the round tripping, all kinds of things are otherwise kind of coming together on this that just say, I need more and more detail, more and more data. I need to understand all pieces of the pie. It's complicated. To start, <laughs> there are many agencies that will regulate made in America claims. 
And there are also different thresholds used for different reasons. So, for example, the Federal Trade Commission regulates Made in America claims. And the threshold is all or virtually all of the content on a product must be made in the USA. And Mm -hmm. that's a very difficult threshold to meet. And then if you switch over to the government procurement regulations, the ones that we're talking about here with the executive order, they provided 180 days for the agencies to create a report from January of 2021 on products Mm -hmm. they've provided waivers to in the past. Mm -hmm. They've also asked for those agencies to submit information about which products and the thresholds. So more to come on what changes will be made to the thresholds for purposes of government procurement. And then if you think about the U.S. customs laws and the free trade agreements like USMCA, every product that you classify for import into the U.S. has a 10-digit code. And that 10-digit code will assign a duty rate. But it would also correlate to a rule of origin in the USMCA free trade agreement that says this product must change from these components to this finished product or have X amount of regional value content based on what type of product it is. Mm -hmm. And that's to qualify it for USMCA. So navigating the rules around whether or not a product is made in the USA is sufficient enough to be considered made in the USA for government procurement under Buy America Act, or meets the USMCA agreement rules for purposes of being produced in the US so that they can be entered duty-free into Canada or Mexico, are all different rules. And that's what makes it so complicated. Yeah, just stepping on that one, to George's point about the different rules that you have to follow, I think the, the tracking mechanisms in some companies are actually very, very good. It really does depend on the reason that you're having to track it and why. So let's take free trade agreements. There's a really decent amount of money that's saved by companies by tracking the origin of certain products. Blockchain's probably a a little bit further down the line, but certainly hard coding the various rules of origin, which are different for every single product. Mm -hmm. Understanding the interplay of the different rules between Buy America, Buy American, the Trade Agreements Act, making sure that you're understanding the origin, that's how you operationalize it. Is there going to be significant time and attention and resources paid to the enforcement side of this? Because if nobody's going to enforce them, then... it's mm. a good question, Kim. And boots on the ground reporting, we see an uptick in enforcement, but also in inquiries from customs. Now, with USMCA, there was a period where customs had a moratorium on enforcement from July 1st of 2020 mm-hmm. through December 31st. Understanding it's a new agreement and that, you know, it takes time for companies to reconfigure the systems that Chris was just mentioning Mm -hmm. and to take new rules of origin and test whether or not their products actually meet them. But there is an uptick in general on inquiries from customs on whether products meet rules, if they're classified properly. We see a lot more traffic with respect to those types of inquiries from customs that typically when you have many of those inquiries result in negative responses or in additional questions may end up leading to an audit from U.S. Customs. They're going to come after you. There's just no question. 
even if there's no duty at stake, the customs regulations do provide for penalties. And actually, they can be worse where no duty is at stake because the penalties are based on a percentage of value of the products versus the actual duty. Can you talk about more focus from direct to indirect tax? And I would even argue, with the greatest respect to my VAT and other indirect tax brethren, that trade is of even more importance because it's it's so variable at the moment. It's not a growing trend. It is an established trend that more tariffs are being used much more for geopolitical purposes. And I think the genie's out of the bottle on that. So there's a lot going on in these first few innings, but as we know, it ain't over till it's over. That's why we play nine. George and Chris, thanks so much for your perspectives on these very interesting times. We'd love to have you back to talk as things continue to crystallize. And in the meantime, everyone, thanks so much for joining us. Be good. Stay well. We'll speak again soon. You've been listening to Destination Country X. Thanks so much for tuning in. We look forward to speaking to you next time.